Chapter Six of the White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather, by P. G. Wodehouse, Chapter Six, Albert Redivivus. By murdering in cold blood a large and respected family, and afterwards depositing their bodies in a reservoir, one may gain, we are told, much unpopularity in the neighbourhood of one's crime, while robbing a church will get one cordially disliked, especially by the vicar. But to be really an outcast, to feel that one has no friend in the world, one must break an important public school commandment. Sheen had always been something of a hermit. In his most sociable moments he had never had more than one or two friends, but he had never before known what it meant to be completely isolated. It was like living in a world of ghosts, or rather, like being a ghost in a living world. That disagreeable experience of being looked through, as if one were invisible, comes to the average person, it may be half a dozen times in his life. Sheen had to put up with it a hundred times a day. People who were talking to one another stopped when he appeared, and waited until he had passed on before beginning again. Altogether he was made to feel that he had done for himself, that as far as the life of the school was concerned, he did not exist. There had been some talk, particularly in the senior day-room, of more active measures. It was thought that nothing less than a court-martial could meet the case, but the house-prefects had been against it. Sheen was in the sixth, and however monstrous and unspeakable might have been his acts, it would hardly do to treat him as if he were a junior. And the scheme had been definitely discouraged by Drummond, who had stated, without wrapping the gist of his remarks in elusive phrases, that in the event of a court-martial being held, he would interview the president of the same, and knock his head off. So Seymour's had fallen back on the punishment which, from their earliest beginnings, the public schools had meted out to their criminals. They had cut Sheen dead. In a way, Sheen benefited from this excommunication. Now that he could not even play fives, for want of an opponent, there was nothing left for him to do but work. Fortunately, he had an object. The Gotford would be coming on in a few weeks, and the more work he could do for it, the better. Though Stanning was the only one of his rivals whom he feared, and though he was known to be taking very little trouble over the matter, it was best to run as few risks as possible. Stanning was one of those people who produce great results in their work, without seeming to do anything for them. So Sheen shut himself up in his study, and ground grimly away at his books, and for exercise went for cross-country walks. It was a monotonous kind of existence. For the space of a week the only Rykinian who spoke a single word to him was Bruce, the son of the conservative candidate for Riken, And Bruce's conversation had been limited to two remarks. He had said, "'You might play that again, will you?' And later, "'Thanks.' He had come into the music-room while Sheen was practising one afternoon, and had sat down, without speaking, on a chair by the door. When Sheen had played for the second time the piece which had won his approval, Bruce thanked him and left the room. As the solitary break in the monotony of the week, Sheen remembered the incident rather vividly. Since the great rout of Albert and his minions outside Cook's, things, as far as the seniors were concerned, had been quiet between school and town. 
Linton and Dunstable had gone to and from Cook's two days in succession without let or hindrance. It was generally believed that, owing to the unerring way in which he had put his head in front of Drummond's left on that memorable occasion, the scarlet-haired one was at present dry-docked for repairs. The story in the school, it had grown with the days, was that Drummond had laid the enemy out on the pavement with a sickening crash, and that he had still been there at, so to speak, the close of play. As a matter of fact, Albert was in excellent shape, and only an unfortunate previous engagement prevented him from ranging the streets near Cook's as before. Sir William Bruce was addressing a meeting in another part of the town, and Albert thought it his duty to be on hand to boo. In the junior portion of the school, the feud with the town was brisk. Mention has been made of a certain St. Jude's, between which seat of learning and the fags of Dexter's and the schoolhouse there was a spirited vendetta. Jackson, of Dexter's, was one of the pillars of the movement. Jackson was a calm-browed lad, yet mad at moments as a hatter, and he derived a great deal of pleasure from warring against St. Jude's. It helped him to enjoy his meals. He slept the better for it. After a little turn-up with the Judy, he was fuller of that spirit of manly fortitude and forbearance so necessary to those whom fate brought frequently into contact with Mr. Dexter. The Judies wore mortar-boards, and it was an enjoyable pastime sending these spinning into space during one of the usual rencontres in the high street. From the fact that he and his friends were invariably outnumbered, there was a sporting element in these affairs, though occasionally the inferiority of numbers was the cause of his executing a scientific retreat with the enemy harassing his men up to the very edge of the town. This had happened on the last occasion. There had been casualties. No fewer than six housecaps had fallen into the enemy's hands, and he himself had been tripped up and rolled in a puddle. He burned to avenge this disaster. "'Coming down to Cook's?' he said to his ally, Painter. It was just a week since the Sheen episode. "'All right,' said Painter. "'Suppose we go by the high street?' suggested Jackson, casually. "'Then we'd better get a few more chaps,' said Painter. A few more chaps were collected, and the party, numbering eight, set off for the town. There were present such stalwarts as Borwick and Crowell, both of Dexter's, and Tomlin, of the schoolhouse, a useful man to have by you in an emergency. It was Tomlin who, on one occasion, attacked by two terrific champions of St. Jude's in a narrow passage, had vanquished them both, and sent their mortarboards miles into the Empyrean, so that they were never the same mortarboards again, but wore ever after a bruised and draggled look. The expedition passed down the high street without adventure, until, by common consent, it stopped at the lofty wall which bounded the playground of St. Jude's. From the other side of the wall came sounds of revelry, shrill squealings and shoutings. The Judies were disporting themselves at one of their weird games. It was known that they played touch last, and scandal said that another of their favourite recreations was marbles. The juniors at Riken believed that it was to hide these excesses from the gaze of the public that the playground wall had been made so high. Eyewitnesses, who had peeped through the door in the said wall, 
reported that what the Judies seemed to do mostly was to chase one another about the playground, shrieking at the top of their voices. But, they added, this was probably a mere roost to divert suspicion. They had almost certainly got the marbles in their pockets all the time. The expedition stopped and looked itself in the face. "'How about buzzing something at them?' said Jackson earnestly. "'You can get oranges over the road,' said Tomlin in his helpful way. Jackson vanished into the shop indicated, and reappeared a few moments later with a brown paper bag. "'It seems a beastly waste,' suggested the economical painter. "'That's all right,' said Jackson. "'They're all bad.' The man thought I was rotting him when I asked if he'd got any bad oranges, but I got them at last. Give us a leg up, someone." Willing hands urged him to the top of the wall. He drew out a green orange, and threw it. There was a sudden silence on the other side of the wall. Then a howl of wrath went up to the heavens. Jackson rapidly emptied his bag. "'Got him!' he exclaimed, as the last orange sped on its way. "'Look out! They're coming!' The expedition had begun to move off with quiet dignity, when from the doorway in the wall there poured forth a stream of mortar-boarded warriors, shrieking defiance. The expedition advanced to meet them. As usual, the Judies had the advantage in numbers, and filled to the brim with righteous indignation, they were proceeding to make things uncommonly warm for the invaders. Painter had lost his cap, and Tomlin three waistcoat buttons when the eye of Jackson, roving up and down the street, was caught by a Seymour's cap. He was about to shout for assistance when he perceived that the newcomer was Sheen, and refrained. It was no use, he felt, asking Sheen for help. But just as Sheen arrived, and the ranks of the expedition were beginning to give way before the strenuous onslaught of the Judies, the latter, almost with one accord, turned and bolted into their playground again. Looking round, Tomlin, that first of generals, saw the reason, and uttered a warning. A mutual foe had appeared. From a passage on the left of the road there had debouched onto the field of action Albert himself and two of his band. The expedition flew without false shame. It is to be doubted whether one of Albert's calibre would have troubled to attack such small game but it was the firm opinion of the Riken fags and the Judies that he and his men were to be avoided. The newcomers did not pursue them. They contented themselves with shouting at them. One of the band threw a stone. Then they caught sight of Sheen. Albert said, and advanced at the double. His companions followed him. Sheen watched them come and backed against the wall. His heart was thumping furiously. He was in for it now, he felt. He had come down to the town with this very situation in his mind. A wild idea of doing something to restore his self-respect and his credit in the eyes of the house had driven him to the high street. But now that the crisis had actually arrived, he would have given much to have been in his study again. Albert was quite close now. Sheen could see the marks which had resulted from his interview with Drummond. With all his force, Sheen hit out— and experienced a curious thrill as his fist went home. It was a poor blow from a scientific point of view, but Sheen's fives had given him muscle, and it checked Albert. That youth, however, recovered rapidly, and the next few moments passed in a whirl for Sheen. 
he received a stinging blow on his left ear, and another which deprived him of his whole stock of breath, and then he was on the ground, conscious only of a wish to stay there for ever. End of chapter 6